and turn to Psalm 147. And let's give our attentive listening to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem, he gathers the outcasts of Israel, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food to their young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his coal? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for calling us to worship you and to hear your word now. Lord, this is uh, your, your hour. This is your uh, time of your revealing yourself and your uh, drawing close to your people. So Lord, turn our eyes on you and uh, fix our attention, our focus on you. So Lord, we may receive from you uh, what you have prepared for us today. And let our minds not be distracted uh, by anything, not any person, but dwell on you and uh, tune into your voice alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so about two years ago, during the summertime, I think, we, um, for the first time, did a series called Why We Do What We Do. Uh, and it's a series I'm hoping to kind of revisit with you every two, three years, perhaps, um, uh, refreshing your memory, if you've heard it before, and familiarizing you, if you've never heard it before, with why we do what we do, and particularly in worship. And rather than doing a series like this in the summer, I thought it'd be um, nicer to actually start the new year with it. So in the next couple months, I want to look at various passages of Scripture with you and show you uh, why we do the things that we do in our um, worship. Each week you come to church and worship with us here, we start with a call to worship, we sing hymns of praise, and we confess our sins corporately and individually, we hear the preaching of the word, um, once a month we partake in the Lord's Supper, and occasionally we baptize our members, and we offer our tithes, offerings, and we receive the benediction. And this goes on 
week after week after week after week after week. And if you're like me and you, you grew up in the church, you might have been familiar with some of these patterns. Um, some of you might actually find some of the things we do to be completely new. Uh, in either case, you actually might not have heard from anyone why. Why, why do we do the things that we do in worship? And, and how are these things grounded in um, Scripture? And so the, the only categories we tend to work with is um, there's the traditional style of worship, and then there's the contemporary style of worship. Um, and depending on your preference, you gravitate towards one or the other. And that's fine until... Uh, you're all grown up and you don't have to go to church because you've only been there all your life or with your parents um, and it's a personal decision and, and you may begin to wonder, okay, why, why do we do the things that we do at church? Is it really about what I prefer and what I don't prefer? And the, the trouble with right, sticking only to the stylistic categories of traditional, contemporary, everything in between is that over time you lose a sense of clarity as to what the scriptural preference is and uh, the, the, the personal preference um, takes all the weight. And so it, to avoid that, um, a part of our goal is to explore the question, does God have a preference in how his people worship him? Um, has he given us any principles uh, to regulate the, the, the worship that we, we give him? And these are the questions I want to explore with you throughout the series. And what I hope you'll see through the, the series is that Scripture does teach us things concerning worship, and God does, believe it or not, God does have a preference in how his people worship him, and that's true all throughout the scriptures, from the Old Testament to the New. God cares uh, about how his people uh, worship him. And today we begin with the call to worship, and uh, that's the very first thing that we open our service with. And, and it tells us that God is really a God who delights in calling his people calling his people to worship. And so we start with that, uh, his initiating, uh, him inviting his people to his house. And this psalm does a good job of showing us why, why God calls us and the meaning of that call, all right? So let me break this down into two big points. Point number one, what scripture tells us about the act of worship, okay? And maybe more specifically, why we do it and why, in fact, everybody does it, why everybody worships. And point number two, what Scripture tells us about the God that we worship. Okay, so the first point is more about us. second point is more about God. Okay, the act of worship, the God we worship. All right, uh, let's dive in. Point number one, what Scripture tells us about the act of worship. Now, notice how our passage today opens and ends with the same three words. Praise the Lord. All right, verse 1, verse 20, praise the Lord. But in, in Hebrew, actually, uh, it's not three words, but one word. And it's a Hebrew word that you all know. And if you're going, I don't know any Hebrew words. Well, you know this one. Uh, it's the word hallelujah. And if you break that down, hallel means to praise, to shout for joy, to celebrate something, and even to boast in something, to boast in something. It's like how we would boast in a hometown team. Uh, and root for them. I know some of you were recently rooting for the Georgia Bulldogs, or during the World Cup, uh, some of you were celebrating South Korea or USA or both. Um, that's that's a kind of hallel where you are uh, boasting in your team and celebrating um, your team. Uh, 
it's, it's also how you would praise or celebrate your friends at their wedding. Uh, how you would uh, also attend the graduation ceremony and literally shout for joy when you uh, find your family member um, walking down the stage. Whenever we're engaging in these sorts of praising and celebrating and boasting, you're engaging in what the Bible calls hell el um, and we can notice something immediately about that, and that is, for one, we all do this. And I would even say we have to, we have a need to do this because life is only meaningful because we have something to boast in and rejoice in and, and shout at the top of our lungs about. It's what our soul, it's what our essence is wired to do. It's the most common and universal human activity and that's why we have an innate necessity to praise something or someone, to celebrate something or someone, and to boast in something or someone. But you know what else? And this is the part that really fascinates me the most is that it doesn't even have to be centered around you. It doesn't even have to be about you. What's important is that you are about it. It's like uh, many of you know I'm a San Antonio Spurs fan. If you have never heard of it, they're, they're a basketball team kind of on the bottom rung of the standing. Um, purely because I love the coach and the coaching philosophy, whatever, and I'm about them. Even though the San Antonio Spurs or the city of San Antonio, they're not in any way about me. Nobody in the city knows me. Nobody on the team knows me. I've never lived in San Antonio uh, they have five championship rings. Uh, I have zero. They never sent me one in the mail. I'm, I'm about them. They're not at all about me. But that's fine. I can still rejoice in their successes, hope in their failures, uh, even though they have nothing to do with me in a sense. And that's the interesting thing about Hal-El, Hal-Eling in something. Uh, you don't have to be the object of praise. You just need to be near it. You, you just need to be about it, and that can be enough. Like a, like a good friend who is genuinely happy for their friend at their wedding. Like even as a single person, right? you're genuinely happy for your friends who are getting married, and you rejoice with them. And that's the fitting thing, and that's the appropriate thing to feel at, at such an occasion. Even though you're not the object of praise, you can still be near it and celebrate it and boast in it. Now, the other aspect of this, beyond just the fact that we all do this, is that we run into all sorts of problems when it comes to engaging in the act of worship. And I think nobody's really said it better than uh, the late David Foster Wallace, who famously said in his commencement speech that there is no such thing as not worshiping. And he's saying this as a non-religious person. Everybody worships. Whether you call yourself religious or atheistic or agnostic, everybody worships because everybody centers their life around something and treats that thing as ultimate. And they love that thing with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. The question is not whether you worship, but what? What do you worship? And that is so important for you to figure out because depending on what you worship, it will consume you and transform you into its likeness. Uh, some of the brothers have been reading for the, the, the men's book, uh, You Are What You Love by James K. A. Smith. And in chapter two of that book, which is probably the chapter that you have to really digest and read slowly, 
Um, the, the author expounds on this point by, by pointing out how our culture is filled. It's filled with secular forms of worship, secular temples, secular liturgies that we're subconsciously devoting ourselves to, like, like religious followers. And he gives the example of going to the mall. Uh, when some people go to the mall, they're actually going to a temple, attending to their religion. It's the religion of materialism. It's where they escape the sin of not having enough, not being new enough, not looking good enough. And there, uh, when you enter that temple, you will be met with a priest who gives you the gospel, the good news. Hey, that looks good on you. And as you walk out with stuff in your hands, you walk out with the assurance of pardon, that you have been pardoned from oldness, from being outdated, from not appearing attractive enough not being as acceptable in your culture, and therefore you may go in peace. You walk out of that temple in peace with objects of boasting in your hands. Of course, there's a way of shopping without any of these hard motives in play, but we'll be naive to think uh, we are not susceptible uh, to that. In addition to materialism, um, Smith gives the um, additional examples of the worship of nationalism, the temple of which could be the White House or the, the House... Congress, um, the worship of intellectualism, the temple of which could be the university campus. Now, think about what would happen, as you know, David Foster Wallace says, as these things become your ultimate source of boasting and how these will consume you and ultimately transform you. And the point about how if you get, if you get consumed by the wrong thing, you, you turn into the wrong thing because if you're, for example, consumed by materialism, they'll make you greedy. If you're consumed by nationalism, they'll probably make you racist. If you're consumed by intellectualism, it'll make you arrogant, prideful. What consume, if the wrong thing consumes you, you will become the wrong thing. Point being what? You must be aware and beware of what it is that you truly boast in. What it is that you uh, truly worship because you will transform into that thing, into the likeness of that thing. And if you transform into the wrong thing, that means th this, this form of liturgy, this form of worship, rather than reforming you, it can actually deform you. Rather than humanizing you to your truest potential, it will dehumanize you. Right? When we get hooked on materialism, become greedy. Hooked on nationalism, become racist. Or become hooked on intellectualism, become arrogant and, and prideful. These are not making us more of our true selves, but making us less. And so here's the here's a psalmist in Psalm 147 telling us how to guard against all this, okay. how to guard against the false liturgies, false objects of worship. Praise the Lord, boast in Him, Hallelujah, which stands for Yahweh, the Lord, in all caps, His personal name. Because only when you approach the Lord this way and behold Him as your ultimate object of worship your ob object of Hal-El, your heart will find true joy, true satisfaction, something truly fitting to your soul. So the rest of verse 1 says, For it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. It's fitting. Why? Because that's what your soul was made for. To clothe your soul with praise for God gives your soul a proper form and structure and posture 
and it has a reforming effect on you rather than a deforming effect. It will make you who you were always meant to be as image bearers of God. And so it is given to us. This is not given to us as some suggestion or it's barely an invitation. This is a command. Praise the Lord. Do this and you must do this. With moral imperative, you must praise the Lord. Your life hangs on this because you ruin your life by worshiping the wrong thing. There's nothing more fitting uh, than worshiping Yahweh and putting our boasting in Him, more than your boasting in your own life, more than boasting in your, your degrees, career, accomplishments, relationship status, your body image, your family, your house, your car. It's not fitting for you to boast in any of these things. Why? Because they're bad things? No, because when we worship these things and treat them as ultimate, they become bad gods and give us bad hearts. This is true for anything. When we make anything more ultimate than God and treat it as our object of worship, we, we ruin it, we ruin us. And just to give you an example of this, and if I could just be real with you as a parent for a moment, uh, and some of your parents, so parents, let's be real. Do you think you can never go wrong with making your children the object of your boasting, making them the absolute priority in your life? If you think that, you got to think again. Uh, when they become, when our children become more ultimate to us than God, it will ruin you. It will ruin them. Uh, it will turn us into the most controlling, most unforgiving, self-absorbed people in the world. And worse, it will turn our children into the most entitled. The more we tell them, you are the most important thing in the world. The universe must revolve around you. You're the center of the universe, not God. It's you. Of course, you may not say that with your words, but when we begin to instill that sense in them with our actions, with the way we prioritize our lives, that's what we communicate to them. The worst thing we can do as parents is to worship our children and treat them as ultimate. And this is true for anything. It's true for marriage. It's true for your studies. It's true for your career path. It's true in anything. Anything we make more ultimate than God, we ruin along with ourselves. We struggle. <laughs> we struggle with the act of worship. It's something we all do, but because of sins, confusions, and illusions, and delusions, we, we're bad. We're bad worshipers. We're bad at this act of worship. And so, Scripture at least points us in the right direction by saying, praise the Lord, hallelujah. And therefore, you're called to worship. The call to worship is a call to be truly a living, image-bearing human being, fully made alive by putting on something that is truly fitting for your soul, and that is your boasting in Yahweh and in no one else, nothing else. Nothing is more ultimate than Him. That is why we are called to worship, to recognize that week in and week out, all right? That's the first point. Here's the, here's the second point. What does this psalm, what does the scripture tell us about the God we worship, and why do we need to know this? Um, psalm 147 is actually a, a brilliant psalm that reminds us that the call to worship is a call to worship God 
as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. If you look at this psalm, you'll see that this is a very intimate self-portrait or self-revealing, if you will, coming from God himself. You notice how personal this psalm is thrown through, how verse after verse, how it tells us about who God is, what he has done. Right? Go down from verse 2. You see, God is the one who builds up. God is the one who gathers. He heals. He binds up. He determines. He gives names. He understands. He lifts up. He casts. He covers. He prepares. He makes. He feeds. He delights. He takes pleasure. He strengthens. He blesses. He makes peace. He sends. He hurls down. He declares his statutes. This is an intimate self-revelation of God from God. And it's structured as a, as a song and a poem. Sent like a love letter to his children, to his people. This is a God who is communicating through the psalm, I want to be seen by you. And I want to be seen for who I am. The call to worship is inviting you and me to know this very personal being, this personal God, to know him for who he is, for all that he has done and is doing according to his words. Without guesswork, without generalizing, without vagueness, without confusion, without conjectures, but with clear, precise, true, personal revelation from God himself. That's why all of God's self-revelation is sandwiched in between the command, praise the Lord. The point of the call is to bring our attention to Him and His self-revelation, to take all of our attention away from our subjective feelings about Him, our subjective contemplations about Him, our guesswork about Him, but focus on His revelation. The call to worship is to take our thoughts captive to Him, Without any, you know, if there is God, he must be this way or that way, in my opinion. No. But to turn our attention to what he has revealed in the scriptures. This, this book written over thousands of years with a miraculous unity, unparalleled historical reliability and corroboration from new manuscript discoveries, archaeological discoveries. That scripture, that book, we're called to worship God according to that. Many of you know how I met Lynn. Um, I shared the story with some of you. It was when I was um, in grad school, first year, t took a spring break from Orlando and visited my brother in Berkeley and um, ended up spending that whole week of spring break asking Lynn out rather than spending time with my brother. Uh, he was more of a chauffeur and um, backing me up because they were friends. And, and I came back that week excited of you know, what might be ahead and thankful and hopeful. And the first person I wanted to share this with was my pastor, Pastor Randy, uh, someone I deeply love and respect. And I just knew at the time that you know, the best thing for, for my dating relationship probably would be just to, to sit down and get his advice. So we sat down for coffee, told him I met someone. First thing he said was, I knew it. I could see it on your face when you got out of the car. Um, and the, the, the next thing he asked me was, well, what is she like? Tell me more about her. What, did, what he didn't say was, tell me what you think she's like tell me what you imagine her to be like tell me what your ideal version of 
Tell me what you preferred her. No, tell me what she is like. Why didn't he ask me about what I think, what I, what I conjecture, what I prefer? Because that would be me telling him not so much about true things about her, but more true things about me, my preferences, my ideals, my imaginations. And it wouldn't really be any true content about her. So his question was not, tell me what you imagine or feel or presume about her, but tell me about her, which means my answer must be informed by what she has revealed to me about herself. And that's how I prove that I actually met someone real. Um, and I have a genuine knowledge and, and relationship with this person, and it's not just in my head. And I think uh, we need a similar relational approach with God. When we talk about God or think about God or sing about God, we should think, talk, sing according to what He has revealed to us in His own self-revelation, in His own words, and not say, well, I think... If there is a God, he would be like this or that. I think if there is a God, he would not be so offended by this and not, not so offended by that. Well, then all you're doing then is proving that you haven't really encountered God, but only a figment of your own imagination. You're only articulating what you are at that point, not who God truly is. You have, in a sense, boxed him in with your presumptions, preferences, and imaginations rather than articulating who he is truly. So look at what it says in verse 5. Uh, verse 5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. And the word measure here means to number or to quantify. Okay. You can't do that with God. You can't number or quantify him. You can't box him in with your pre-existing standards of measurement. He's beyond measure. The call to worship is not to box God into those pre-existing measures, whether that's cultural preferences, personal preferences, political correctness of our time, but to see that God is somehow transcending all of that, all cultures and all times, all forms of our measurement. He's beyond measure. Beyond measure. And that's why it says, immediately after verse 5, starting in verse 6, the Lord lifts up the humble. The humble who understand, I, I can't figure him out on my own. He must come and make himself known to me. The Lord descends to lift up the humble. The humble doesn't ascend to where God is on their own. God is the one who condescends, brings his people to where he is, the humble. He initiates with them. Those who say, God, I need you to make yourself known to me because I cannot make you known to myself. It must be you. First being humble with the humble, coming down, lifting me up. And that is the gospel. The gospel is top-down. It's not bottom-up. God coming to us to bring us to himself, not the other way around. It is like the curtain in the temple that leads into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies that was torn once and for all from top to bottom at the moment of Jesus' crucifixion to show us, like the author of Hebrews says, 
that the torn curtain symbolizes the body of Christ that was torn for us on the cross. That that was God's top-down love. The Son of God who came down to make a way for sinners to become sons and daughters of God and to show us that He has accomplished everything that's needed for us to draw near to God, to ascend to where He is, to be lifted to where He is, to worship Him as He is. So the call to worship is also a call, and it's always a call, to see this good news, to believe this good news, that although we must worship, but we only worship the bad things, He has made true worship possible. The worship of the true one and only God possible, even for sinners like you and me, through the person of Jesus Christ, through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his return. It's a call to rejoice in him. It's a call to rejoice in his good news. It's a call to recognize he is Yahweh. He is Lord. And your Lord has become your Savior. He has paid the price for your acceptance, your justification, your completion, your adoption, your forever boasting. All of this you have in Him. So we can come, like the hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to Thee for dress. Helpless look to Thee for grace. We get to worship that way and respond, respond to the call to worship. Not only is the call to worship from God, the ability to respond to the call is from God, and that is the good news. God invites us in, and He fills our empty hands with His mercy. He dresses our nakedness, our shame, our guilt with His goodness and love, His mercy that is more. And even with our continuing weakness and sins, as we confess them, He pours Grace upon grace upon grace. This is the God you are called to worship. This is the God you are called to boast in. So the two reasons why we are called to worship. One, you're worshiping something, someone anyway, but you better be worshiping the right thing because what you worship will consume you and transform you. So worship the Lord, worship Yahweh. And secondly, the only way the only way you can be free to respond to that call and worship is through the gospel, is through the good news, which you are called to recognize. You're not called here because you're worthy. You're not called here because you have lived the good week. You're not called here because you had a good sinless streak. No, you're called here because you need more, more of Christ, more of Jesus, more of his mercies. The call to worship is therefore a call to recognize Jesus is your Lord. Not only is he your Lord, He's your Savior. As often as you're here, the first thing you hear in in the service is the call to worship. Be reminded of that. I'm made to worship. It's what I do anyway. But most fundamentally, I'm made to worship Him. Worship Yahweh and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder um, of first how you made us. Uh, you made us to worship. You made us to adore. You made us to boast and, and glory in you. And Lord, we confess uh, we have boasted and gloried in um, different things, lesser things, uh, things that have left us wanting more, things that have left, left us dissatisfied, things that 
have left us thirsty for more. So, Lord, we, we come back to you. In repentance, we turn to you once again. And we, Lord, pray for the greater measure of faith, your gift of faith, to put all of our boasting in you, Lord, and to behold your Son, Jesus, to be our greatest treasure. And we pray, Lord, that even when we fail to hold fast to him, you would hold fast to us. That, Lord, ultimately our reason for worship is you. Even our strength to worship is in you. And the persevering in worship is also because of you. And so we worship you alone. And we glory in you alone and we boast in you alone. Thank you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.